Welcome to the Susquehanna Valley Baptist Pulpit, preaching a life worth living, abundant life in Christ. And now the message. Now tonight we're going to again look at uh, these small things and see what God might uh, teach us tonight in the few minutes that we have together. And I'm excited to hear uh, Brother Allison preach again here in just a few minutes. So let me get, get uh, speaking and get out of the way and uh, let the preacher come preach to our hearts tonight. So uh, with, with the, the story again, let's, let's read it all the way down to verse 10. The Bible said, The angel that talked with me came again, waked me as a man's waked out of his sleep. And he said unto me, What seest thou? And I said, I, I've, I've looked, and behold, here's what I saw. A candlestick, all of gold, with a bowl upon the top of it, and seven, his seven lamps thereon, and the seven and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are upon the top thereof. Then he says this, here's what else I saw. And two olive trees by it, uh, one upon the right side of the bowl, the other upon the left side thereof. So I answered and spake to the angel that talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And the angel that talked uh, with me answered and said unto me, Knowest thou not what these be? And I said, No, my Lord. That's why I asked you to begin with. I didn't know. And so, verse 6, He answered and spake unto me, saying, This is the word of the Lord unto Zerubbabel. And so here's what He's saying to Zerubbabel. I want you to understand, Zerubbabel, it's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And then he makes this, this question that we will visit eventually. He said, Who art thou, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? Thou shalt become a plain, and he shall bring forth the headstone thereof, with shoutings crying, Grace, grace unto it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. And he said, His hands shall also finish it. And thou shalt know that the Lord of hosts hath sent me unto you. For who hath despised the day of small things? We started last night dealing with the subject of small things. Pray with me and for me. Ask the Lord to touch us tonight. Our Lord in heaven, we want to thank you for the, uh, the opportunity and the privilege of being here this evening. And I'm asking you, Lord, that you'll touch us in a mighty way and that you'll give us uh, leadership and direction as we try to preach. Thank you for this uh, crowd of people, Lord, tonight, this body that has... Uh, brave the weather uh, to come in to meet with us tonight. I pray, Lord, that you'll touch uh, the feeble words of your servant, use them in some way uh, to help someone along the way, and help uh, Brother Allison tonight bless this church, bless uh, Pastor Starnes and his family, do exceeding abundantly above all that they could ever ask or think according to the power that works in them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we begin to uh, recap last night, we were dealing with the subject of small things and how that through the Word of God, God uses small things to do the greatest and grandest of His work. 
as you look through the Bible, it doesn't take you long beginning in uh, Genesis and working your way all the way through through the book of the Revelation to see how God over and again uses small things. We talked about the devastating use of small things by God in Egypt by way of the plagues, such as would be the frogs and the lice and the flies and just small things. When you cross over the Red Sea, you go through wilderness wanderings and you wind up going into uh, the land of Canaan. Uh, There at Jericho, there is a lady by the name of Rahab. And the spies simply told her this, If you will go so far as to trust and believe God, leave this scarlet thread, just a thread. Now, you don't have to put this huge banner out. Just put this thread out and God will spare you life. That small thread was used by God in the sparing of her life. And who can forget David? Uh, David, uh, a small boy with a small flock and a small sling and a small rock. And the next thing you know, you've got a, a big problem on the ground. And David's whole life is dis- defined by little small things that God does and then does them in a grand way because he uses small things to bring him the greatest and grandest glory. There are a lot of things that seem to be great and grand in their size and in their number, but when you look back uh, over, you know, I've been at this uh, pastoring for over 30 years, and when you look back at who gets the glory out of everything, you wonder, was this even of God, or was this just a man-made work that hard work and effort produced some result. But God always shows up in the smallest of ways to do the grandest of work so that He gets the most glory out of it. Last evening we visited the four creatures of Proverbs 30. We dealt with the ant and the coney and the locust and the spider. The Bible said these are small on the earth, but they do grand things. He talked about the ant, how that it's it's not real strong, but it prepares itself and prepares for itself. The coney is a feeble folk, yet because it protects itself, it's able to thrive and survive. We talked about the locust and how that the locust is very small and very insignificant in and of itself, but when it partners together or bands itself together with others that have the same purpose that it has, Its abilities are phenomenal. And finally we dealt with the spider. How that she's not just in a cottage, she's in a palace. And as she weaves her web, she's swept down. She weaves her web, she's swept down. But through perseverance, she survives and thrives. The point I wanted to get across to us is, we are small and we are insignificant in the grand scheme of the world. But we're serving a great God, a grand God who wants to take us as a small individual in the kingdom and utilize us in a great way. It was Samuel when speaking to King Saul over there in chapter 15 after the debacle at Amalek, and this is a statement that Samuel made to Saul. He said, when thou wast little in thine own sight, that's when God did something with you. When you were insignificant to yourself, and you had to rely on God, that's when God picked you up, sanctioned you, and used you for His glory. And there have been a many a man that started like Saul, who also ended like Saul, 
because they began to be big in their own eyesight. Those ants prepare themselves, and so must we. The conies protect themselves, and so must we. Every week, and I told you last night, I, I counsel every, every day of my life nearly. I was on the phone counseling with people throughout the day today. And in counseling, uh, oftentimes I counsel preachers and men who used to be preachers whose lives have been devastated by the power of sin when they were little in their side and they were striving to do something for God and God was using them. And then the, the work became greater than the work of God in their own heart and they dedicated themselves more to the largeness of the work than they did the master of the work himself. And they failed in their relationship and communion with God and ultimately failed in the work of God. Over and over again I see that happening. And one of the reasons why is they don't protect their self. We see so many wash up on the shores of disaster because of a lack of protecting their self. Then we must prepare ourselves and protect ourselves, but we must realize that we are not God's only servants. And we're not God's only people. And I want you to understand something. I'll be very frank with you. God uses some people I wouldn't use. Wouldn't you agree with that? God uses some folks I wouldn't use. And that's none of my business. I stay in my lane. I partner together with those who are of the same mindset as I. I let God do His business. And I lay in His toolbox as a tool God can use in His own way and fashion as long as it brings Him glory. But I must participate. And then thirdly, fourthly, whatever number it is, we must persevere. If we don't persevere, we simply fail. There's just no way around that. Last evening we finally ended by dealing with Gideon and how that Gideon was small in his own sight, but he was insignificant in his sight to the place and point where he had relegated himself to such nothingness that God couldn't use him until he began to see himself as God saw him. When he began to see himself as a mighty man of valor, when he began to see himself as a man God could use to defeat the Midianites as one man, it was then that God began to use Gideon. We began to talk about what his failure was in seeing himself the way he saw himself in his own sight, and that was fear. We spoke about the subject of fear on last night. So let's begin to plot our way through this man by the name of Zerubbabel and talk about Zechariah a bit tonight in these 20 minutes or so that we have together. So he's the 11th of the 12 minor prophets. We've already said that. One of the things about Zechariah is that this whole work of Zerubbabel and Ezra in the building of the temple is really important to Zechariah. For you see, Zechariah was of the priestly extraction. He was of the tribe of Levi. So the establishment of this work called the temple that will eventually be known as Zerubbabel's temple is of much importance to him. His prophetical career, that being Zechariah's, began in the second year of Darius the king somewhere around B.C. 520, which is about the date of the writing of this prophecy. 
And it was about 16 years after the return of the first company of exiles into the land of Israel when this is going to be taking place. Now we do know that Israel was held in captivity, Babylonian captivity, Media-Persian captivity for about 70 years. But many, if not most of them, stayed a lot longer than 70. Some of them over a hundred years before they ever made their trek back to the land of their home. Many of them never did at all. We have no accounting or reckoning of the fact that even Daniel made his way back that direction. But now they're going back. They're trickling back. They're moving back. And they know that the central uh, theme of the nation of Israel that links all of them together is not just the fact that they're sons of Abraham, but that they have worship of Jehovah and they must have a house to do that in. And so it is Ezra and Zerubbabel along with 42,000 plus workers that are going to go back and get that job done. And God is sanctioning Zerubbabel for this task. Now, Zerubbabel is, uh, he is uh, uh, the son of what a man we would call Salathiel. He's mentioned in Haggai chapter number 1. He's also mentioned as Zerubbabel in the book of Matthew chapter number 1 and verse number 12 in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is known by this Persian name of Sheshbazar. If you look in the book of Ezra chapter 1, verse 8 and 11, Zerubbabel is referred to, that, referred to by that name of Sheshbazar. But he is the man that we know as Zerubbabel. Now Zerubbabel is an interesting name and we'll get to that here momentarily. I want to plot our way through our text if I may. Now, what is the plan of God here? I think that's important. I am a servant of the Lord. You are servants of the Lord. It matters not if you're a pulpit servant of the Lord or a pew servant of the Lord. We're saved. None of us are any more important to God than one another is to to the church or to the Lord. We are servants of the Lord. And God has a purpose for our life. I believe that with all my heart. The Bible said that the Lord Jesus had a purpose, and that was to destroy the works of the devil. The Apostle Paul told Timothy he had a purpose. He said, you've fully known my manner of life and my faith. And he said, you've fully known my purpose in life. The Bible also says that purposes are disappointed if there's not a multitude of counselors speaking wisdom and, to use the pastor's message from last night, speaking truth into our life. So it's important that we realize that we're not just saved to get to heaven. That's not why we're saved. I'm glad I'm not going to hell. I'm glad I'm not going to hell. I'm glad I'm going to heaven. But the Lord did not save me just to keep me from going to hell. He saved me to reestablish that relationship that was lost by humanity, by sin, in the garden. And now that He saves me, He unites me in oneness with God and establishes a relationship, not a religion, but a relationship with the Holy God in this expectation of forming Christ in me through the work of the Holy Ghost of God and the Holy Scriptures. That being said, what was the purpose of Christ? The Lord Jesus said, I am delivered to this world. I have come here 
to do the will of my Father. I'm here to be engaged in the purpose of my Father in this world. Now I am a son of God. It it doth not yet appear what I shall be, but I know that when he shall appear, I shall be like him, for I shall see him as he is. But in that meantime, the Holy Spirit of God, Romans 8 and 29, is conforming me to the image of Jesus the Christ. He's working on me, and the finished product He will reveal at the judgment seat of Christ. Someone said, how do you feel about all of these people apostatizing that used to to be in good churches and used to stand right and they're going in different directions? How do you feel about that? I said, I'm excited about it. I'm loving it. I'm appreciating it. Because they went out from us, because they were not all of us. Because if they had been all of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. I'm glad they're leaving and showing their true colors. I told our church that the Lord is coming back for a bride that is without spot and wrinkle. And if He's coming back for a bride without spot and wrinkle, there's a whole lot of washing and ironing that's going to need to be done before the bride's ready. I'm going to be a part of that washed and ironed bride as Christ is being formed in me through the work of the Holy Ghost of God. Now He's doing that so that we can do as Jesus did to do the will of the Father in this world. Now, what is the will of the Father in this world? I think the application could be made to the same work that Zerubbabel's doing. Notice with me in verse number 9. In verse number 9, he said, here's what Zerubbabel's done. He's laid the foundation of this house, and his hands are going to finish it, this house, and thou shalt know the Lord of hosts has sent me unto you. Now back up to verse number 2, and he gives us a living illustration of what that is. Here he's using an illustration of what this man by the name of Zechariah seeing in sleep to convey this illustration to Zerubbabel so that Zerubbabel knows this is what you're doing. He said, now here's what you got to see. You're going to see in the dream a candlestick. The candlestick is all of gold. On the top of the candlestick, according to verse number 2, is a bowl, an empty bowl. Now, out of that bowl, there are seven pipes. These seven pipes are running out of that bowl into each of the lights that are upon the candlestick. Into that bowl are running two golden pipes that are pumping fresh olive oil, which is the oil for the burning of the light, and it is being pumped directly out of the living olive tree into the bowl, and then the oil is flowing into the light. Now, what is that a type of? Well, according to the book of the Revelation, and chapter number 1, verse 12 and 13, John, the revelator, on the Isle of Patmos said that he heard a voice. And when he turned to see the voice in verse 12, He said, being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, and then he said this, and in the midst of the candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and and girded about the paps with a golden girdle. 
And then in verse 20, he said, This is the mystery of those seven golden candlesticks and the seven stars that you saw. These are the seven local churches in Asia, meaning the church at Philadelphia and Thyatira and uh, the church at Sardis and Laodicea and all of the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation. So when Zerubbabel is being given this idea of the candlestick, it is the same as the illustration in Revelation 1. It has to do with the local house of worship. It has to do with the church of the living God. The most important thing in my life is not my little farm that I live on. The most important thing in my life are not, is not deer hunting and fly fishing and riding motorcycles and whatever things I like to do. That is not my purpose for living. My purpose for living is the church of the living God. That's my purpose for living. And for me, it is the Galilee Baptist Church at 5619 Pageland Highway, Monroe, North Carolina, where God has linked me up and put me into that local body of worship. Now let's consider some things about the church. Now just for my sake of my little outline. What about the foreordination of the church? I had a man one time wanted to corner me up on when the church got started. Boy, I'm telling you, people fall out with you in a quick hurry over that. And he said, when did the church get started? I said, I know exactly when it got started. He said, when? I said, before the foundation of the world. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, the Bible said that the works of God, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 3, were finished in the economy of God before the world ever began. I am not a Calvinist, but you've got to ignore a lot of Bible not to believe that God is an omniscient, sovereign God that knows the end from the beginning. And so God foreordained the church before the world ever began. Before He ever formed Adam out of the dust of the earth, God already had Jesus planned to be the Redeemer of mankind and the whole world, mind you, and the church was a part of God's plan before He ever put Adam in Eden. So the church has been important to God from the start. The church is not something God thinks about lightly. It is important to God. So it's not only a foreordination of God, but the foundation of the church is of God. Jesus looked at His disciples and He said, Who do men say that I am? In the book of Matthew, in chapter number 16, verse 18, who, who do men say that I am? One of them said, well, Elias. Somebody said you're Elias. Ah, somebody said, mm, you know, one of the prophets. Jesus said, who do you say that I am? Peter piped up and said something good for once, and Peter said simply this. He said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood's not revealed that unto you. He said, thou art Peter. And upon this rock, thou art the little rock, but upon this rock I'll build my church. And then notice this, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that's a good statement, isn't it? Boy, I was in a preacher's fellowship one time, and this man was preaching. He was a local church guy. I am too. And here's what he said. He said, the gates of hell, according to the word of God, 
cannot march against and prevail against the local church, the local church, if it's been established by God, will never, ever go down, the local church. And so a preacher came to me afterwards and he said, what do you think about that? I said, well, not much. He said, why do you not think much about that? I said, well, you show me, if you can, take me to the church at Laodicea today. Take me to the church at Thyatira today. Take me to the church at Rome today. Show me their local assembly today. He said, I can't. He said, I, I said, that's because they as an assembly don't exist today because somewhere along the line, Satan got in the middle of that thing and it's gone. Now the gospel is still going on and churches have still grown. But I said, let me tell you something, sir. Gates were never offensive. Gates were defensive. Gates don't march. Gates don't go to battle. Gates don't war. Gates are there to keep a marching force from entering enemy territory. I said, the Bible said that we are the church of the living God founded upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of darkness and the gates of hell to this wicked world cannot keep the church from marching into the darkness with the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They can't keep us from marching into the darkness. And so it is the foundation of the church, Christ. The fair of the church, the price of the Bible said in Ephesians 5, 25, that husbands are to love their wives even as Christ loved the church and He gave Himself for the church. Now let me say this to you. If Christ gave Himself for the church and the Holy Spirit of God is conforming me to that same image, should I not be giving my life to the church of the living God? Well, quiet, but that's true. Number four. The focus of the church. What should be the focus of the church? The Bible said this, And he hath put all things under his feet, Ephesians 1.22, And he has gave him, gave Jesus, to be head of all things to the church. Now, I told our church the other day, I've been there for 22 years, and there's things I can say now that I couldn't have said many years ago. I said, I, I, I try to be a, 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 a man you can get along with, you can come and talk to me. I'm not hard to deal with. I'm not a tyrant. I'm not a dictator. But I am the head-tater. I'm the head-tater around here. And I'm here to make sure nobody else is the dictator around here. And we're going to do business as God leads and directs through His Word and through prayer in this local assembly. And we're going to do a work for God for His honor and His glory's sake. But Christ is the head of Galilee Baptist Church. I'm not the head of Galilee Baptist Church. Pastor Brendan is not uh, the head of this church. Pastor Allison's not the head of his church. We are under shepherds, under the headship and lordship of Jesus Christ the Lord. Now, notice secondly, in just a moment of time, the pressure that Zerubbabel's having to deal with here. Notice this, if you don't mind. In verse number 1, note this, the Bible said, The angel that talked with me came to me again, and notice what he did for him, very similar to Peter's experience. The Bible said, He waked me as a man that is waked out of his sleep. In other words, 
Zechariah is asleep when this message from God comes to him. So let's think about sleep for a moment. Why do people sleep? Why do people sleep? Well, number one, people sleep because they've labored and they're tired. In the book of Matthew chapter 13, when the enemy comes in and sows tares in the field, he does it while the workers are asleep. And a lot of times we like to, uh, you know, we like to slam on the workers for going to sleep. But the fact is, everybody's got to sleep. Sometimes you work and you sleep and the church of the living God, you give your all to it, you give your heart to it, and you've labored and you're weary, you're tired, and when you lay down to go to sleep, the enemy comes in and does a work in the church and you're not responsible for that, it just happens. It happens to every local church. Sometimes we sleep because of labor. Sometimes people sleep because of laziness. The Bible said in Proverbs 6 verse 10 that yet a little slumber, a little sleep, a little folding of the hands of sleep, so shall thy poverty come as one that traveleth and thy want as an armed man. In other words, some people are just lazy. And the reason they face what they face and pressure in the ministry, some people face pressure in the ministry because they've been doing all they can and Satan is working against them. Some people face pressure in the ministry because they're lazy and won't do a thing. A preacher that knows more about his golf clubs than he knows about his Bible needs to get out of the ministry. A preacher that knows more about uh, about 10 o'clock in the morning than he does about 4 o'clock in the morning, I got an issue with that. I just have. Some people don't even know there's four, two 4 o'clocks in the day. Some people have no idea about that. I try to get my day started at 4.30 every morning and get along with God, get working in the morning. And, and, and I know that some people sleep later and work later in the night than I do. But the bottom line is, we must not be lazy. We must labor if we're going to fulfill our purpose in the cause of Christ. But many are lazy. Then some people sleep because they're low. The Bible said in the book of 1 Kings chapter number 19 that Elijah had prophesied that it wasn't going to rain a couple of chapters prior. It hadn't rained for three and a half years. He's been under immense pressure. Can you imagine the pressure that Elijah's been under? Can you imagine what it would be like here in Harrisonburg, Pennsylvania if it did not rain, not one drop, not one drop of dew for three and a half years? Could you imagine what the landscape of this community would look like if no water fell? There would be cattle that would die. There would be dairy farms out of business. There would be tourism that would disappear. People would lose their businesses. And many folks would die. Can you imagine the pressure of carrying that on you after it has been by your word that nothing fell from the sky? He has went into the uh, Mount Carmel and he has uh, uh, slain the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 of the grove, or whichever that was, and 850, according to my rendering of understand the scriptures, have died at his hand. They've washed the bodies away in the, in the water and then now he's, he is coming down. He's prayed in a cloud of a man's hand and a falling of rain. The pressure's off and then the word comes from Jezebel, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And Elijah leaves his servant behind and he goes out into the wilderness and he gets under a juniper tree and he lays down and he sleeps. Why? Because of the pressure. 
May I say, there's a reason why the Apostle Paul said to the church at Thessalonica in chapter 2, or chapter 3, verse number 13 of chapter two, of uh, second, the book, second book of Thessalonians. He said, the, but, but, but ye brethren, be not weary in well-doing. In other words, well-doing brings weariness. I don't know of anybody that's just all jacked up, ready to go all the time for God, and not weary, and not tired, and not battled, and not... And I've seen these fellows, I've seen guys that it seems like everything that they do in the ministry turns to gold. They, they spend more time, they spend more time in recreational activity and vacations, and then the ministry just thrives and booms all around them, and they... I mean, just everything goes well. They never have trouble. They never have difficulties. They wouldn't say boo at the devil if he showed up at their church house. They don't preach on sin. They don't stand on separation. They don't stand on anything at all. And everything goes well for them. And then if you're not careful as a young man, you'll scratch your head saying, am I got this thing all wrong? No, you don't have it all wrong. You must stand where God's Word stands. And to do that, it means you are in the battle of your life. Can I say this to young men who want to be in the ministry? If you don't have any fight in you, you don't need to be here. Because it takes grit in your crawl. A, a backbone like a saw log, the, the height of a rhinoceros, and the constitution of an alligator, if you're going to be able to make it in the ministry, this is not for wimpy, soft-handed men. This is for men who are, who are like Elijah, who go through difficulties, tough times, adversities, and, t- and still continue to stand. I want you to look at one verse of Scripture, and I'm done. I want you to go to Ezra chapter number 3. Ezra chapter 3. And this word is coming to old Zerubbabel from Ezra. And it's it's an interesting word. Zerubbabel is giving his best. He's, He's giving it all he's got. He's pouring out every bit of the energy that he has within him to do something that God is pleased with. He could care less if you know Him. He just wants to do right. Which is where I think you are tonight. If you showed up tonight, there's something in your heart that just wants to do right. Now look with me if you would in verse 12. But many of the priests and the Levites and the chief of the fathers who were ancient men that had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice, and many shouted for joy. And verse 13 said, So here's what you couldn't discern. You couldn't discern the difference between the noise of those that were filled with joy, shouting over what they were seeing happen before their eyes, and the noise of those who were mourning and complaining because it wasn't like it used to be. Now, can you imagine being Zerubbabel and pouring your effort into what God's got you doing? You've not bucked at God. You're obeying God. You have got a submissive spirit. 
You're trying to work with various workers, 42,000 of them. And you're trying to manage all of these men who all have different ideas. You're trying to read plans and get things started. It's long days, up early, work late. You're away from your family. You're doing the best you can. You're wanting to be obedient to God. God has been kind enough to give you a word from Himself. And, he, and, he, and you hear from God. And you're just a small man with a small part in a great big work. And you just want God to get the glory for it. And when you get the thing just about turnkey, everybody comes by to inspect what you've been doing. And they start crying. And you wonder, is it touched them emotionally? And they're saying, no, this is a sorry looking excuse. This is nothing compared to the way it used to be. Now can you imagine being Zerubbabel, having poured your blood, sweat, and tears into doing something for God, and it not being appreciated by people? We don't do what we do to be appreciated by people. But it is nice when it's appreciated. I'm thankful for one man at my church. One little old man. Brother Wiley Hargett. Every Sunday morning, he'll wait on me. Everybody's filed through the line. It, it may be a sweet service. It may be blood in the cracks and hide on the wall. You never know. And... And it just might be a tough day. And there have been days when I've gotten up there preaching and nobody's listening. And Brother Mike, I'll just stop and say, I ain't wasting a good message on this crowd. Go home. I'll preach it tonight. And I'll walk out and get in the truck and go home. Now you say, you hadn't. Oh yeah, I've done it more than once. And so you never know what you're going to go through as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You just don't know. But old Wiley, he'll be back there with his little Bible under his arm. And Susie, she's done walked out, his dear wife. And she'll tell me everybody that died in the community before she leaves. And, and um, no, I don't know him, but pray, I'll be praying for him. And so uh, Wiley walk up and he say, man, that's good preaching. The Lord's been helping you, hadn't he? Yes, sir, he sure has. Telling you, preacher, that's good. I can count on that. Now, I'm going to be honest with you, there's some days I need it. There's some days I don't need it. But boy, I'm telling you, your preacher needs you to be paying attention to the work he's laboring on. And he's not doing it for your applause or your appreciation. He's doing it for the glory of God. But it sure helps him a whole heap when somebody said, No, nah, preacher, it probably ain't like it used to be but it probably wasn't as good as we thought it was. And preacher, I'm just excited about where this house is going. Do you realize Jesus Christ never walked in Solomon's temple? Jesus Christ never walked in Solomon's temple. But you know whose temple he did step foot in? He did walk in Zerubbabel's temple. I'd much rather have a little house that Jesus walks in than a big house Jesus never stepped foot in. Let's stand there. Come on. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us, please write us at P.O. Box 126-541, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, 
1712 and visit our website at www.svbcpa.org. Until next time.